0: Welcome to episode number 188 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Joan Estep Holly Pogue Rama Sharma Lo Ruth I. Rootslayer, Slayer Sophia Engzel Michael Thompson Ash Sodith Sanchez Sarah Stewart Bobby Thompson Wild Bill snowdrop shay outback jack 99 emma gray emma tag mrs b megan crosswell j j and Karen McAvoy. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review is Lamb. Lamb was released in 2021. It is 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb and 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. A couple encounter sinister forces after discovering a strange and unnatural lamb born in their barn. <sighs> I really, really wanted to love this film. You know, I started watching another film. I started watching um that one that's all over TikTok, *Skin and my Ink, and then I was like, "Oh, no, I'm not really feeling this." So I turned that off and decided, "Oh, I know what I'll watch. I'll watch *Lamb* because I saw the trailer for *Lamb* last year and thought, "Oh, that looks really good. That looks like it's right up my street." It it right, let's just do the likes. Let's just stop stop talking and do the likes. So it's, the setting is amazing. It is amazing. It's set in Iceland. It's on this farm. It is beautiful. It's all these rolling hills, snowy mountains. There's lots of snow. It's very isolated. It is absolutely stunning. There's also lots of gorgeous little animals. So if you love farm animals, if you want to see some lambs being born, then this is the film for you. If you want to sit down with a cup of tea and watch some lambs being born, then turn on Lamb. And and you'll get exactly what you came for. Actually, you know, the performances were really good from the characters, even though the dialogue was relatively sparse. Like, I didn't particularly like any of the characters, to be honest, which I think might have been part of this film's downfall. But the performances in general were good. Like, they were very believable characters. This couple who were lonely and isolated on this farm in the middle of Iceland, working really hard. And I think you sort of get the impression as the watcher, as the viewer, that they have tried to have children and not been successful or they have had children and lost children. And I think there was something very genuinely, very moving about their quiet and calm acceptance of what has happened to them, but also the fucking weirdness of the situation that they end up in. It was... So strangely believable. You know. I was looking at it going. Yep. I understand. And I believe that this is happening to them. But. But it was also so stupid. And I've said this. Numerous times on this podcast. That I like a cerebral horror film. And by that I mean. I like a horror film. That you have to do some thinking about. You know. That you're trying to figure out what's going on. And I don't like films. Like slashers and stuff. Where it's just handed to you on a plate. And it's just lots of violence. And You kind of know the story and you kind of know what the outcome is going to be from the beginning, right? I like a film that you have to think about. But clearly, clearly I said that and karma has come back to bite me because I did so much thinking about this film that I ended up disliking it immensely. And maybe I I just didn't really get it. Maybe I just didn't get it. I was honestly shocked that it has 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. Honestly shocked. And I thought to myself... I'm going to have to look up what, what I'm missing from this film. One of the things I saw when I looked up was the director was asked in an interview, um, what what does this film symbolise or what does it mean? And he said something along the lines of, I mean, I don't really know what it means. The meaning is different every time I watch it. And I thought to myself, oh, that's so annoying. That's so annoying. I didn't didn't think it was scary. I didn't think it was mysterious. I didn't get the sinister forces. Uh, I really just, I guess I just didn't get it. Maybe it just wasn't for me. And once, once I got over the initial shock of what was happening, I just kind of got bored. And I don't want to say any more than that because I don't want to, I don't want to ruin the the story for people I just and I thought it was a bit sad you know and and I understand actually that is a part of it that it is meant to be sad but like I don't I don't I don't I didn't think it was a horror film I didn't think it was a folk horror film I understand there was folk horror elements I mean the ending I was just like I'm sorry what is happening and I think on a very basic level like I understood I think I understood what the film was trying to say but I just didn't really like it. And look, I I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. It feels really wrong to say this, but I'm going to say it. And if anybody has seen the uh the film, can you let me know if you agree or disagree with this one? But was Ram Man kind of hot? Am I allowed to say that? Is that just me? I don't know. I don't know. If you've seen the film, let me know. Overall, it just wasn't it wasn't a hit for me. I think I'm going to have to I'm going to have to give it two stars and, and th- that's a push, I think. I think the originality of the story was interesting. I think the characters were believable. the The acting was really good, even if they weren't particularly likable. And the scenery was absolutely out of this world. I appreciate a folk element to a story. I really do. But I just didn't particularly like it as a horror film. I just thought it was quite boring. It wasn't really enamoured by it. One thing I will say is that when I was reading an interview with the uh, leading actor, the the wife in the story, she is Icelandic, I think, and she grew up on a farm. And she said that her whole life on the farm, her grandmother told her about elves and that even though she couldn't see the elves, the elves were there and she had to respect the elves. So maybe, maybe that's the reason I'm giving it two stars. Maybe it was just because I read about elf respect. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Which brings us to our story this week. Now, our story this week is one that's been bopping around for a very long time since the days since the early days of real life ghost story this this particular topic has been bandied around and I want to give a special mention to Caroline. Caroline I don't know if you're still listening it's been a long time you know but you have been volleying this this topic for a really long time and you always jokingly referred to it and always in good spirits too in terms of uh, referring to this as the potential reason for various stories etc. So Caroline this episode is for you and I also need to give a shout out to Lindsay who messaged me on Patreon and said hey have you seen this topic and sent me a link to a Reddit conversation around it and then I went oh Caroline needs to talk about this all the time and then I looked into it and had my mind absolutely blown genuinely this story it just gave me all sorts of feelings. I have to say before we start that this story is going to talk about being very close to death. And the first part of this story deals with um nine eleven. So for some people that might be a time to check out, but it is the first part of this story. So you can check back in halfway through and and, and still listen to some good stories that maybe won't be as triggering for people. So let's get into it. As humans, we are designed by evolution to congregate in groups. Call it a survival mechanism or just a need to feel a part of something. There are, of course, exceptions to this rule in that there are some people who just prefer to be alone. But for the most part, we move within groups or at least on the periphery of groups. We have towns, villages, cities and settlements, family units, friendship groups, working teams... And really, a lot of that stems from our need for connection. And I think there is no deeper need for connection than when we are in trouble. Most of us will experience times of deep stress, pain or trauma in our lives. But most of us, thankfully, won't experience actual mortal peril. But there are those who do for whatever reason. Some people seek it out. Actively embarking on gruelling treks up mountains or into the deep wilderness, risking life and limb for a sense of achievement or maybe the sense of feeling so close to death that you feel truly alive. For others it is accidental due to some series of events they end up in a perilous situation where they are one person against nature. For others, it is a human-driven, cataclysmic event like a terrorist attack or even a car accident. Whatever the case may be, whatever the individual perception is of mortal peril, or indeed how the individual ended up there, what happens to human beings when we are faced with our own mortality, and I mean really faced with our own mortality? When someone is tired terrified and confused and wholly alone facing the end of their world there is an often reported phenomenon that takes place the mysterious appearance of the third man it is unlikely that ron di francesco started his day thinking that by the end of it he would become a semi household name He worked for Eurobrokers, a financial trading firm, on the 84th floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Centre. And at 8.46am, there was a deafening boom. His building shook and the lights above his head flickered. There were some audible gasps, but then silence descended over the 84th floor. What had just happened? They could see the plume of smoke rising from the North Tower. Was there an explosion? A fire? What? A voice rang out over the public address system Building 2 is secure. There is no need to evacuate Building 2. If you are in the midst of evacuation, you may return to your office by using the re entry doors on the re entry floors and the elevators to return to your office. Repeat Building 2 is secure. Ron craned his neck to look at the box where the voice was emanating from, and somehow he wasn't reassured. As he glanced again towards the billowing smoke of the South Tower, he called his wife, Mary. "'I'm fine. It wasn't my tower. I promise I'm fine.' He turned his attention back to the walls of data on the screen in front of him, but found himself unable to concentrate. His phone rang. It was his friend from Toronto." Ron, I'm telling you now, get out of there. Something is wrong. Ron agreed. He rang Mary to tell her he was leaving the tower. At 9.03am, the second plane hit the south tower. It hit the building between the 77th and 85th floor. Ron had just left the trading floor, and now it no longer existed. Destroyed by the impact. Ron had been thrown against the wall and showered with debris, but he was alive and mobile. The south tower had three emergency stairwells and Ron stumbled out onto stairwell A, which happened to be the only stairwell that offered any hope of escape from the floors above the impact. There were others streaming into the stairwell and they all began to descend through the dimly lit floors that were rapidly filling with thick smoke three floors down, they met a woman. You can't go down. There is nowhere to go. It's all smoke and flames. Go to the roof. They can rescue us from there. People began to turn around and make their way back up. There were voices that emerged from the floors. But the door mechanisms that were designed to keep smoke out had jammed on impact and now there was no way to open them. They kept moving up. As more and more people joined, Ron began to panic. There were too many people, it was too smoky, and he didn't care anymore. He couldn't keep going up. It was too much, and he was too claustrophobic. Ron turned around and went back, descending the stairs through the tower. The situation was truly dire this time. The smoke was black and poured up the stairwell. Ron was starting to seriously struggle and when he got to the impact zone he could go no further. He crouched as low as he could and the smoke began to take a hold of him. He could see people all around him and he knew he couldn't get out of this. But then he heard a voice. Get up, Ron. Ron, get up. You can do this. The voice was male. And it was not a voice he knew, but he physically felt a presence. And then it happened. Someone physically lifted him up off the floor. Ron, get up, you can do this. He then felt himself being guided. And although he physically didn't feel anyone take his hand, that was the sense he got that someone was leading him down the stairs. He continued his descent. Climbing over collapsed walls and debris and was met with a wall of flames. He recoiled but he heard the voice again. Ron, go through the flames. You will be fine, I promise. And despite all of his natural sense of fear, his human intuition to stay away from the flames, Ron listened to the voice put his arms over his head and walked into the wall of fire. He now believes that the flames were present for three storeys, but he emerged on the 76th floor, singed but otherwise completely unharmed and continued down the stairs. It was only then that he felt as though the presence had left him. Ron made it to the lobby of the building and he was directed to an exit, and just as he made his way out onto the street, there was a deafening roar and the building collapsed behind him. Ron Francesco was the last person to make it out of the South Tower before it collapsed. He was one of only four people to escape the building from above the 81st floor. This story is by no means an attempt to trivialise the events of 9-11 or its far-reaching impact. Ron Francesco experienced what is known as the Third Man Factor, and it was him who went on to speak about what happened to him on that day in the South Tower. But why is it called the Third Man Factor, or, as it's otherwise known, Third Man Syndrome? It's from a book called South. That was written in 1919. As reported in the Guardian newspaper, on the 5th of December 1914, explorer Ernest Shackleton left South Georgia with his ship HMS Endurance, heading for Antarctica. Within weeks, the crew had run into serious trouble. Heavy pack ice surrounded the vessel and gradually began to crush the ship. On the 20th of May, 1916, Ernest Shackleton, Frank Worsley and Tom Crean reached Stromness, a whaling station on the north coast of South Georgia. They had been walking for 36 hours in life-threatening conditions in an attempt to reach help for the rest of their party. Three of their crew were stuck on the south side of the island with the remainder stranded on Elephant Island. To reach the whaling station, the three men had to cross the island's mountainous interior with just a rope and an axe, a journey that few had attempted before or since. By reaching Stromnus, they managed to save all of the men left from the ill-fated Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. They did not talk about it at the time, but weeks later all three men reported an uncanny experience during their trek. The feeling that often there were four, not three, men on their journey. The fourth, that accompanied them, had the silent presence of a real person, someone walking with them by their side, as far as the whaling station but no further. Shackleton was apparently deeply affected by the experience but would say little about it in subsequent years, considering it something which can never be spoken of. Encounters such as these are common in extreme survival situations. Guardian angels, guides or even Christ-like figures have often been reported. We know them now as the third man experiences, following a line in T.S. Eliot's poem The Wasteland. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together, but when I look ahead up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you. Elliot had heard of Shackleton's encounter, but could not remember the precise details, meaning that the fourth man became the third man. In 1997, Stephanie Schwabe entered a world that most of the human population would never see. Her lights lit up the walls like jewels and white stalactites and stalagmites surrounded her. She was in a place called Mermaid's Lair, 30 metres deep and off the coast of Grand Bahama Island. Schwabe was a researcher and her job was to study the cave systems that included Mermaid's Lair, She knew these caves as well as anyone could and had done this dive countless times. The only difference was that this time she was doing the dive alone. Her husband, an expert diver and researcher named Rob Parmer, had died in a diving incident earlier in the year but she was continuing their work. Schwabe was busy collecting sediment from the floor of Mermaid's Lair to be studied and the day had already been a strange one. En route to the destination, Stephanie's path had been blocked by a poison wood tree that had been blown into the road and using all her strength to push it aside, she had suffered serious skin irritations from the alkaloids in the tree sap. When Stephanie had collected all of the samples that she needed, she decided to end the dive and packed up her equipment. But her heart sank. She couldn't see her guideline. Diving in itself is dangerous, but cave diving is even more dangerous because if things go wrong, you can't just ascend. You have to make your way through the caves horizontally before approaching the surface. It is incredibly easy to get disorientated and lost in caves under the water, hence the need for a guideline for a safe exit from the cave system. Stephanie's line was not there she could not see it and then she realised what had happened she had always relied on Rob to be her guideline that was his job and despite him not being there she had fallen into the same routine without even thinking twice she checked her oxygen tank and realised with growing horror that she had 20 minutes of oxygen left and absolutely no idea how to get out of this cave suddenly she was furious Furious with her husband for dying, and furious with herself for such a rookie error, and now she realised that she was going to die. And in a strange way, she was okay with it. She was resigned to it. She was in pain, and depressed, and missed her husband intensely, and she was ready to die. Suddenly the water around her brightened like her field of vision had sharpened and she could see clearer. She felt a flush and became intensely aware that someone else was in the cave with her. She heard her husband's voice loud and clear. All right, Steffi, calm down. Remember, believe you can, believe you can't. Either way, you are right, remember? Remember? Steffi sat cross-legged on the floor of the mermaid's lair, willing herself to be calm. Fifteen minutes had passed, and she opened her eyes and looked up, feeling calm in the presence of her husband. And as she scanned the cave, she saw a flash of light. And as she peered closer in the direction of the flash, she was suddenly able to see her guideline. She followed her guideline out and realised... That that day was simply not her day to die. But what happens when the third man is not just a voice? Not just a sound in the ether or a light in the darkness? What if the third man is seemingly a real person who seems full-bodied and very much alive and is witnessed by multiple people? This story is taken from the blog of Daisy Luther in her own words. You can learn a lot from falling down the side of a mountain, stunt woman style, but honestly, I don't recommend it. I would suggest that you read books and articles instead, as those activities are far less painful and traumatic. I'm an experienced hiker. Up until this point, I have only suffered very minor injuries in the miles and miles that I've covered. I've shared my love of hiking with my kids, and we've spent many hours enjoying the wilderness and learning about nature. We have covered a lot of rough terrain, and I have always tried to teach my girls how to trek through dangerous situations safely and carefully. When we saw the steep path, Tess and I both thought it might be a bad idea, but for some reason we decided to do it anyway. Our footwear and gear for this particular descent were not really appropriate, but it was only around 40 or 50 feet, so I talked myself out of my concerns. I sincerely wish that I had listened to my instincts. Because of that mental warning, I tried to be especially careful descending the path, but unfortunately, it wasn't enough. The second step down consisted of a large stone, about a foot and a half across, set into the path. I tested it with my foot and it seemed stable. Seemed. It wasn't and when I had my weight on the stone, it rolled off the edge of the path, and I rolled with it. Unfortunately, I remember every second of the fall, it wasn't one of those situations where I just woke up at the bottom of the ravine. I clearly recall feeling my face smash off the rocks once, twice, three times, and thinking that I was glad I had my sunglasses on. I remember feeling the thorns on the blackberry bushes tearing at my arms and legs. I remember praying please don't let me get hurt too badly. When I arrived in the heap near the bottom of the ravine, I could hear my daughter screaming, the other kids calling my name, and Tess yelling that she was coming down. I was worried because I could only see out of one eye initially. I shouted back up that I was okay, a few times. I thought to myself, well, okay is an overstatement, as I saw blood drip off me to the rocks I was on, I had bounced approximately 30 to 40 feet down the rocky ravine. I heard Tess assigning jobs to the kids in order to offset their panic. She sent them to run back to the trailhead for help because her husband had still been at the van getting some things together for our outing. My first physical concern was getting something between me and the rocks without sliding the rest of the way down the ravine. Not only were they sharp, but they were so hot, that the blood droplets gave a little sizzle when they hit. My bag made it down with me since I had been wearing it across one shoulder, messenger style. I raised up and put the bag underneath me to sit on. I had lost a shoe part way down and the bottoms of my feet were embedded with thorns. I put my shoeless foot on top of my other foot and cautioned Tess to be careful as she hastened down to help me. Tess, my hero, rushed carefully down to rescue me. She tossed me a beach towel when she got into range so that I could cover more of the rocks that I was perched on. The heat from the rocks was burning my skin despite my efforts not to touch them. Once I got situated nausea and dizziness set in and I started shaking. I think this was the after effects of adrenaline. When Tess got to me she immediately began to assess my injuries. She checked my limbs and the worst of my visible injuries, then used a towel moistened with a splash from a water bottle to clean the blood that was gushing down my face and into my eye. Once Tess felt certain that none of the wounds were life-threatening, our next task was getting back up the side of that ravine, a daunting venture. She had retrieved my missing shoe and plucked the worst of the thorns that had been embedded in the bottoms of my feet during my plunge. We began to climb. "'very slowly and carefully, almost at a crawl. "'Because of the dizziness, I had to pause frequently "'since I really didn't want to fall down that hill again. "'Then a voice from the trail said, "'Are you okay?' "'We looked up, and a man was staring down at us in concern. "'Tess told him that I had fallen "'and we were trying to get back up to the trail.' That nice man, that good Samaritan, that guardian angel was down the side in a flash holding out his hand to me. He assured me he would not let me fall. He said, dig deep. And he pulled me up to safety in what seemed like only a few steps. He helped my friend to the top as well. At this point, other hikers had stopped to help, offering water and a place to sit. I turned to thank our good Samaritan and he was gone. I wondered did I hit my head that hard? But my friend had also seen him and he had pulled her up also. None of the other hikers seemed to know who we were talking about. To this day I cannot explain who that man was, how he pulled me up so fast or where he went to. And so the stories go on. Stories of humans in great mortal peril who are saved by a presence, whether it's felt, seen, heard, or all three. It has been recorded for centuries, and of course, the stories aren't confined to people in the history books. Or they aren't confined to great explorers or adventurers. People, everyday people, experience the third man factor all of the time. The user RocketKT69 on Reddit posted... I was in a really terrible car accident a few years ago and I was stuck in my car. They had to cut me out. During it, I came to and there was a woman who had climbed into the rear seat behind me and was holding my shoulders, telling me I was going to be okay and that help was coming. I thought she stayed with me until I blacked out and woke up to a fireman, cutting the door off and pulling me out. The firemen, paramedics and my mother, who had gotten there quickly, all said there was no woman at all. That traffic had gone around and no one had stopped because the fire department was only a few blocks down the road. I can still hear her voice. I know she was touching me, but no one saw her. Freaks me out still. And numerous people shared similar experiences in response, including the user bobbin For bears who posted, Wow, something like this happened to my dad. He fell off a sea cliff in Alaska onto boulders and shattered his leg and broke his back in a handful of places. He lay there alone for hours calling for help with no luck. Then he said a little girl came down the cliff and kept him company. He said she told him stories and sang to him and pet his head and even put her coat over him to help keep him warm. But when someone eventually came around the bay and spotted him there was no little girl. It was near a very small, remote Alaskan town and no one in that small community had any idea of any little girl who even remotely matched her description. We always joked it was his guardian angel. I'm going to stop there. I was going to do some sort of very intellectual kind of summing up paragraph. But you know what? I actually don't think it needs it. Uh, because it, it just these stories blew my mind I started reading a book called The Third Man Factor by John Geiger I think is the link obviously or the, the name of the book and the links to wherever I got these stories from as always will be in the description of this episode and the book honestly honestly blew my mind just these stories of human survival are like they give me goosebumps they make me so emotional like Ron Francesco, his story honestly made me so emotional. I, I can't imagine what life must have been like for him going forward and thinking, why me and not everybody else? Like the survivor's guilt he must have felt must have been incredible. And most of these stories about third man factor are about people who are on voyages or on ships or they're hiking in the mountains or something some sort of survival situation like that. But Ron DiFrancesco's story obviously isn't. He he faced a cataclysmic event as a very standard everyday everyday person who doesn't have equipment with him. He is not trained to survive that kind of situation. And the original Shackleton story is absolutely insane. They set off on this voyage and the, the water literally froze around their ship. And they couldn't navigate the ship anymore. And then eventually the ship was crushed under the weight of the ice freezing. And they had no choice but to leave the ship. And they managed to roll like, I don't know how many miles away, but it, it was a pretty long way away. They managed to roll like a rowboat to a place called Elephant Island. And then they realised on Elephant Island, okay, we, we're, we're going to die here. We, we, we're, we're not going to survive. And they trekked for it. was. Um, Shackle, Shackleton and five men I think all together trekked for 36 hours with barely anything and they all survived I, I mean it's just incredible and I think that story of the third man factor is interesting because all of them experienced it but none of them talked about it and it was only afterwards that they discussed what had happened to them and what they had felt and it turned out they had all experienced the same Thing And Shackleton said, we just don't have human words to describe what it felt like. We don't have the language to describe what happened to us, which I thought was really profound. And John Geiger in the book kind of goes through all of the different possible explanations that people have for this third man factor from, you know, guardian angels to lack of oxygen, to stress and strain on the brain. Like there's obviously all sorts of different reasons as to why this might might happen to people. Uh, He had had his own sort of third man incident when he was a child, which involved him and his dad and a rattlesnake. And he met lots of adventurers and explorers who had had similar incidents. And he noticed that there was a link between kind of solo travel, solo adventuring, and the advent of these stories about the third man. So when people started doing big exploration voyages or like I'm going to sail around the world on my own or I'm going to fly around the world on my own then people, those people started to talk about this third man factor where they were guided or looked after by this presence, this spirit, whatever you want to call it, this guardian angel that would look after them when things got too much. And the first thing I think it's really important to mention is that some of these experiences obviously can be linked to, it's called hypoxia, which is when you just don't have enough oxygen going through your blood and it can cause hallucinations. So that's the first thing to note, is that there are biological reasons as to why this can happen and altitude sickness too. So people being really high up in mountains, they can hallucinate, like people have seen all sorts of mad things. There were stories of people who saw flying horses when they were high up in mountains, or they saw rocks that turned into teacups when they were high in mountains. And a lot of scientists put the third man factor in the same bracket as people with altitude sickness or hypoxia. And while that's a perfectly reasonable explanation, these stories aren't limited to people who are at high altitudes or people who are in situations where they have low oxygen. These stories happen to people in all sorts of different situations. People who have oxygen galore, people who have plenty of oxygen, still report the third man factor and the stories are often quite similar but there might be some variations to them there are also kind of schools of thought around the third man factor where they just say it's just the human will to live the human will to live is so strong and that's where the third man factor comes from which in itself is not an unreasonable thing to say but I also think it's important to note that like in terms of the human body biologists talk about Limit physiology, which means that there are sometimes biological limits that our bodies cannot survive. So, like, if your core temperature is risen by a couple of degrees, you will get heat stroke and you will likely die. If it is below a certain temperature outside, you will get hypothermia or frostbite and you will likely die. Like, there are biological limitations to the human body, and sometimes. These situations, these survival situations, these third man factor situations, sometimes people, these people survive against all the odds where you think, hang on, you shouldn't have survived. Your body should not have survived this without some sort of intervention. So what happened? I'm not a very religious person and I would not be quick to say that this was some sort of guardian angel phenomenon. But I'm not going to stop short of saying that it's, some sort of crazy phenomenon that happens in our brains that our our brains have the power to like project another person when we're in situations of dire need and I honestly think that is as paranormal as anything else. I think our brains are so capable of absolutely wild and wonderful things like it does not surprise me or it would not surprise me if in these situations of dire need it has the capacity to literally literally project another person to convince us that somebody is sitting there beside us m- helping us to survive and therefore we end up surviving i do, i it just honestly these stories blew my mind and there was one more little little reference that John Geiger made in his book it was quite fleeting but it made me it made it, it it it, sort of um made me pay attention and that is that some researchers believe that there is a link to third man phenomena and children who have imaginary friends apparently 30% of children will have imaginary friends between the ages of three and six years old. Generally, those imaginary friends last for about six months and then they disappear. And there are lots of in- researchers, obviously, who are interested in why. Why does that happen? And there are there is a body of research around this who study this phenomenon in children who do not believe it is make-believe, not that... It is paranormal, not that it's ghosts, but that these children are literally creating an entire other person for whatever reason. And they found that a lot of these children, so this 30% of children who have imaginary friends, these imaginary friends will often appear around times of turmoil. Now, what you think is turmoil and what a child will think is turmoil might be different things. So it might be the birth of a sibling or it might be their moving schools or they're moving... A grade or a class in schools or their parents have gotten divorced or split up. Whatever it is, there's lots of different things that a child could find stressful. So the researchers realised that these imaginary friends appeared when things were particularly stressful for these children and they posited that this was not make-believe. These children 100% knew that these people were real and there have been lots and lots of reports of Children, we know this from the podcast of children who their imaginary friend turns out to be a relative who has passed away or a friend of the family who has passed away. And interestingly, in stories of the third man factor, there are five different things which often come into play things like boredom, where somebody's doing something monotonous over and over again, Uh, things like multiple triggers, like starvation, lack of sleep ideas around a savior, ideas around something called the muse factor. But the final one is the widow factor, which is people who report the third man factor, but they believe that it is somebody that they have lost in their life. So whether it is a partner or a friend or a colleague, that is who they believe is the third man who comes back to help them. And similarly, that happens really regularly in children who have imaginary friends. Now, I don't know what that means. Okay, I don't know what that means, but the red string is out. It's dotted all over the wall. I'm like Charney from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I am that meme right now because it's all coming together, but I don't quite know what the answer is. Okay? Do I think this is like ghosts or supernatural or paranormal? I'm not entirely sure. Do I more so believe that it is some sort of like crazy power that our brains have that shouldn't be dismissed as just hallucinations? yeah probably I probably do believe that let me know what you think I'm dying to hear it Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Real Life Ghost Stories. If you have your own spooky story that you would like to submit to the podcast, you can do so by emailing it to podcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website Podcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra spooky stories, you can sign up to Patreon, that is patreon.com forward slash ghost stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free.